Hello, and welcome to the interview. I'm Ada McLaughlin, the editor-in-chief of Mediaite. My guest this week is CNN anchor John Avlon. John hosts a daily segment on CNN morning show New Day called Reality Check. It does a brilliant job of adding the context of history to take a closer look at political and cultural stories in the news. John also has a new show that debuted on CNN Digital last week called Reality Check Extremist Beat. It's a weekly series airing on Thursdays that examines the rise of extremism in the United States over the last few years. The first two episodes focus on QAnon and the anti-vaccine movement. Before CNN, John was the editor-in-chief of The Daily Beast. He started his career in politics, working as chief speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani when he was mayor of New York. I called up John this week to discuss CNN, his new show, the rise of extremism in the United States, and whether the lunatic fringe has won the battle or the war. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to you, man. So you are hosting a new weekly video series for CNN Digital that is taking a look at the rise of extremism in the United States over the last few years. Uh, what can you tell us about it? Well, it, it's, you know, it is a new CNN Digital show, you know, bringing broadcast across platforms. Um, we're doing eight episodes initially, and it really builds off um, work that I started when I began as a, as a columnist and doing a reported column uh, at the Daily Beast that became the book Wingnuts. Um, I became really interested, I think, relatively early on in what we colloquial call the, the, the extremist beat, um, which is really looking at the rise of, of extremist American politics. Um, and, and then what I did with, with Wingnuts and what I continue to do is, is try to look for the, the history uh, behind these folks. You know, Harry Truman used to say the only thing new in the world is a history you don't know. And, and I think that, you know, perspective is the thing we have least of in our politics. Um, and at the end of the day, I think, you know, all, all my books and a lot of my columns all center around this problem of how to stop hyperpartisanship, hate, how to, you know, strengthen the center, defend liberal democracy. And so Wingnuts uh, and, and Reality Check Extremist Beat is an extension of that idea, but playing offense against the extremes, drawing on reporters, adding history, hopefully a little bit of humor, some pop culture references inevitably, um, to add perspective and create the conditions for common ground. You know, it's, I continue to believe the key quote of our times is that Daniel Patrick Moynihan quote, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. And Reality Check is and has always been sort of a fact check plus. And this is an extension of that. So one of the most interesting things about the new show, which I, I've watched uh, two episodes now of, is that it traces the roots of these new conspiracy theories like QAnon. I, I didn't realize the extent to which these insane new ideas actually have a basis in old anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic tropes. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think that's where the value add is. I mean, you know, uh, I, I'm a, I'm a part-time historian because everybody needs a hobby, but that's what interests me. You know, it, it's not just the the, the insanity of the spin cycle in the current times and, and our sort of obligation uh, as journalists to be on the front lines in the war on truth, it's to pull back for a second. It's to say, you know, there, there, this doesn't come out of nowhere. And in the case of QAnon, um, you know, we, you can see that it, it's building off these sort of synaptic patterns that probably are unconscious to many of their own followers. But when you look at some of the roots of the conspiracies, um, you know, the, the, the fixation on, uh, you know, child abuse and it starts veering into blood libel. And of course, that is an echo of a centuries old anti-Semitic tropes. Um, if you look at, you know, some of the, the conspiracy theorists that, um, you know, talk about tunnels being built under the White House and Congress, that's an, uh, a riff off of, 
uh, attacks on Al Smith in 1928 when he was the first Catholic nominee for president. People said he would build a tunnel between the Vatican and the White House. At the end of the day, a lot of these things riff off older conspiracies. And by, I think by, by pulling out and, and drawing those connections, um, people can all of a sudden have perspective on what they may have been sucked into. Um, and, 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 and that's the hope. And then by drawing on the great reporting of people like Joni O'Sullivan and Ellie Reeve and Sarah Seidner, these great CNN reporters who were on the extremist beat, we add that additional layer um, that I think is, is a lot more than what you get just by you know, the, the, the daily sort of thrust and parry of the news and chronicling the craze. And I have to think that one of the lasting legacies of having someone like Donald Trump as president is not only like a, an erosion of faith in constitution of, of institutions, which contributes to the rise of extremism, but also this intense flood of misinformation. Is that why your series focuses on the last five years, starting when Trump rose to the presidency? Ab absolutely. I mean, you know, it, it's all stuff that's ripped from the headlines today, but we're downstream still from that initial sort of flood the zone of disinformation and misinformation, which was designed to sort of overwhelm people's ability uh, to judge and 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 you know the 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 need to combat disinformation is just as great as it was when Donald Trump was president, even if it's not emanating from the Oval Office, mm. uh, because this stuff has has gotten in the water, so to speak. And so you see the persistence of these insane conspiracy theories that actually have a cost in people's lives. I mean, disinformation can literally be deadly, as we've seen from. COVID denialism and anti-vac conspiracies, which is the subject of, of the second uh, episode, which will drop this Thursday. Um, so I, I just think it's important to say, look, this is in the news. This is something that might be affecting your news feed, your friends and family. Here's the step back that mm -hmm. can sort of say, hey, this is what it riffs off of. Here's additional reason to know it's bogus <laughs> and to put it in, in context for folks so that it creates the conditions for finding common ground again, mm. which is one of the things we have at least have in our politics. Speaking of, so the, the next episode, which is uh, releasing on Thursday, which is also when this, this podcast releases, um, it, it focuses on the, the anti-vax movement. And one thing that I find crazy about the movement today with the you know, COVID vaccines is that Trump has been fairly supportive of the COVID vaccines. He hasn't exactly been crying from the rooftops about them, but he's taken the vaccine. He's been on Fox News and he said that everyone should get the vaccine. It, and yet there's this big anti-vax sentiment amongst his more conspiracy-minded supporters. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's twofold. I mean, first of all, I, I, I don't I wouldn't say Trump has been a, a vocal advocate for vaccines, although Certainly not vocal. <laughs> yes. uh, right. I mean, he literally took the vaccine in secret mm. while he was still president in January before before the inauguration. Now, why would you do that? There's an opportunity to help people um, and to tell your supporters this is safe and scientifically sound. And moreover, you know, it, it, you know, at least in the case of, of, of Moderna, you could say this emerged from Operation Warp Speed. Take credit yeah. uh, for the, the success of your own administration. But I, I think that he understood that anti-vaxxers, which is something that, by the way, has migrated from the far left a decade and change ago to the far right and really become ingrained in, in, a, in a worldview and a belief system that is predicated upon decreased trust. It's predicated upon um, the sense of of of. Uh, a, a deep state, if you will, um, that is is trying to impose its will on people. Trump understands that's a big part of his base. So even now, when he actually tries to say in rallies, get the vaccine, it's safe, he gets booed. And, and one of the things that Johnny O'Sullivan and other point out is 
that that's a bridge too far even from Donald Trump. One of the lessons we learn over and over again is that Gollum always turns on its creator ultimately. Hmm. And, and that's, that's what we're seeing in this. But there's a real death toll associated with this. I mean, if you ever had any doubt about the real world impact of this disinformation, we're seeing it in a death toll. And, and one of the things that I, I, I particularly dug about that episode isn't just you know, it's great reporting and Johnny's reporting, um, but it, we, I found this, this pamphlet from 1885 during a smallpox outbreak in Montreal. And it's all there, all the riffs that are repeated in this pamphlet, um, you know, talking about the tyranny of a, doctoc of a, of a doctocracy, a cartoon showing uh, a working man being held down by a police officer and a doctor forcibly getting vaccinated, saying that, uh, that he was being given the mark of the beast. This is all stuff we see echo across the ages, the decades, right to today. And, and, and I think when people see it with that sense of perspective, maybe it'll wake some folks up. And then we also tell the stories of people who've broken out of the cult, because I think that's critically important too. Mm. Um, because, you know, as, as Ken Burns sometimes says, you know, you don't convince anyone with an argument, you convince someone with a story. And I think this is part of the story we're telling. It's a lesson for journalists in general, but also hearing from people who used to believe this stuff, uh, who then had a, what might be called a moment of clarity. I, I paused your show and was staring at that cartoon, which I believe it was from like the 1800s, because <laughs> it looks like it could have been doodled by Tucker Carlson. It's like the exact kind of rhetoric that you're hearing today. And I, yeah, I, I agree. I don't think people realize that this stuff has a basis in history that goes back, you know, 100 years. And it, it, I think that is really a good way of exposing that, like, these ideas are not sort of organic or true. They are tropes that have been going on for decades. That's right. Um, now, I think the alarming thing about all of this is that, to me, the, the incentives are, seem really bad. There was a story in the Daily Beast today about how the Republican Party is doing massive fundraising off of Biden vaccine mandates, and that Fox News segments that feature anti-vaccine commentary are great for ratings. With those incentives in place, I'm just not sure how this kind of thing ends. Like, do, do you see a way that we get past this? Well, I think, first of all, you see is on something really important, which is our incentive structure is screwed up. And I think we need to recognize that in, in politics and, in some extent, the media, right? I mean, if you want to look at sort of how we got to where we are, um, you know, at a time when liberal democracy is being challenged abroad by authoritarian models and our own dysfunction is being largely self-created, how? Through closed partisan primaries, the rigged system of redistricting, everything that shifts the incentive structure in our politics away from sort of a, the sensible center and creating an incentive to actually solve problems where self-interested members of Congress say, you know what, all I need to do to hold on to my job is fend off a partisan primary challenge from the far right and to some extent the far left. We've got asymmetric polarization in our country, so I don't want to do a both sidesism, but the dynamic mm -hmm. exists in both parties because you only have around you know, 30 com genuinely competitive seats. If you had more competitive races for Congress, the incentive would be to reach out to the center to win over the, the reasonable edge of the opposition. The absence of that has created the context which gives rise to an unrepresentative extremes disproportionately dominating our politics. And so too in, in the media, you know, the, the media strategy of cocooning, which is, you know, the, the, the media and monetary equivalent of playing to the base, to going for a narrow but intense niche audience and keeping them sort of their attention engaged with, you know, anxiety and anger and fear. Um, that's a business model. And it's one that in a fragmented media environment, uh, places have seized on, but that has, participated disproportionately in our polarization, add on to that 
the, the role of social media. And you see this sort of toxic brew that we're dealing with as a, as a society. Uh, and to defend democracy, I need, think we need to confront those dynamics, to call them out and to say, look, these things are not inevitable. These are incentive structures that have been effectively created uh, by, by, by our study, and they can be fixed if we focus on them and insist that this is not the way we want to live. We have to move beyond the Tower of Babel. We've got to find a way to communicate across partisan lines. And that depends on saying everyone's entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Here are the facts. You made a similar case in Wingnuts, yeah. uh, which you brought up earlier, which came out uh, what, a couple of years into the Obama. It came out actually in, in 2010. It was based on my reporting in, right. in 2009, the earliest days of the, the Tea Party. And the, the book has a sort of optimistic note to it, which is a hope <laughs> that Americans will renounce extremism on you know both sides of the political aisle. It, given what you just described in the past few years in American culture and politics, do you think that the lunatic fringe has won? No. But the lunatic fringe, you know, is- They're ahead is, by five. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you know, I said the, the subtitle of that book was how the lunatic fringe is hijacking America. Yeah. I think now you could say how the lunatic fringe has hijacked America uh, because they elected a president in effect. Um, but keep in mind, you know, I'm just finishing up a, a book on Abraham Lincoln. It's called uh, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. And it'll be out next February. Um, so I'll quote Lincoln, although I, I got to caution that this is a, a, an apocryphal quote. Um, Lincoln is, is allegedly said, um, I'm an optimist because I don't see the point in being anything else. And, and that's how I feel. Um, you know, it's up to, to, to we the living who are in the arena right now to try to make a situation better. And I think those are the kind of impulses, uh, however idealistic and earnest, and I, I plead guilty of that particular sin. Um, you know, it increase, especially when you have kids, the alternative is unacceptable. Now I'm considering the, the, the first two episodes that you've done of the new show, it, how big do you think these extremist movements are in the United States? There's an argument that the media is sort of propping up movements like QAnon and giving them sort of undue attention uh, when really it's just like a small group of, of crazies that should not be sort of given this much attention. Yeah, th this was actually a debate that was had when Wingnuts came out. People said, "Look, are you by?" You know, there weren't a lot of people on the extremist beat when I when I yeah. started started uh, to 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 dig into that reporting, um, and and folks said, "Aren't you just giving these folks the oxygen of attention?" I think the alternative is actually ignoring what's actually happening. I think the last decade has certainly borne out that these folks had far more power in these closed systems that are themselves polarizing because frankly, the people profit off polarization politically or, or personally, um, and that they can have a disproportionate impact in electing people to Congress and electing people to Senate and electing a president. Ignoring that fact doesn't make it go away. The new new thing I think has been the role of social media in accelerating that. And what it's done is it's allowed people who in the past, frankly, would have been relatively isolated by the absurdity or extremism of their political views to aggregate across broad spaces and then to all of a sudden turn into a political force through small dollar donations, through, through showing that there's a, uh, a, a media market or a political market for playing to the extreme. And you know, as, as, as you know, that old William Butcher, Butler Yates quote, uh, poem quotes, you know, the, the, the question is, you know, the center cannot hold, it seems at times. I'm willing to bet and believe it does, but the center has to give a damn mm. and start standing up as much as, as, as the crazies are willing to do. I mean, this is, you know, stand up and yell, be reasonable. This is, I've, I've got a, one of the posters on my wall here in my office is from John Stewart's rally uh, to restore sanity. 
that, that old chestnut. It, it, it did not, in fact, turn the tide, uh, <laughs> but it's the right idea. Now, one of the, the leading figures who's been accused of driving some of this extremism is uh, the former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, yeah. who you used to work for as a speechwriter when yeah. he was mayor. I'm sure you get this question all the time and you're sick of, of answering it, but, but what do you think happened with, with Rudy Giuliani over the past, of the past couple of years? Look, you know, the, the Rudy Giuliani knew and that I was you know, proud to work for as a young man as chief speechwriter in City Hall before and, and during 9-11 was a very different guy than the person we see today. Um, and, you know, some people believe that as you get older, you get more so. Um, that may be the case. But as a matter of fact, in policy, Rudy Giuliani stood up and condemned Pat Buchanan uh, in, in his influence in, in the Republican Party and then threw in all for Donald Trump. Uh, remember, he was a pro-choice, pro-gay rights, pro-immigrant mayor of New York City before 9-11 um, in a city that was, you know, five to one, six to one Democrat. Um, you know, Rudy's somebody who told me and believed at the time that to be locked into partisan politics doesn't permit you to think clearly. Well, you know, I think reflect that quote back at him today would be, yeah. would be very useful because he's being locked into partisan politics and he's not thinking clearly. And I think it's a disgrace uh, what he has done in, in, in terms of the election. I mean, he has been part of this crew uh, that has tried to overturn an election. That is unforgivable. I don't think that um, this sad last chapter of his career should define his entire career. Um, I think that uh, he should be remembered for what he did as mayor of New York and turning around America's largest city, turning into America's safest big city, which was it, it considered an impossibility uh, when he entered office and for the leadership he provided 9-11. But there's no getting away from the fact that he has abandoned uh, a, a lot of his ideals and, and is not showing the, the clarity or judgment or character uh, that, that I'd hoped. And instead, he's participated in one of the most shameful and disgraceful uh, episodes of American history trying to overthrow an election. There's no excuse for that. Speaking of, of the attempt to overturn the election, do you fear that future elections are imperiled now by this rise in a refusal to accept the results of the election if you've lost and by taking any means possible to, to try and overturn them? Absolutely. Definitionally. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're in, in investing in election subversion, Right. So on the one hand, you've got voter suppression, an attempt to sort of this anti-majoritarian impulse because representative elections might reduce the hold of, of, of powerful ideological constituencies um, in parties. Uh, and that's expressed through the rigged system of redistricting, closed partisan primaries, and uh, frankly, the electoral college. This is one of the reasons why I'm so nervously passionate about election reform, because, you know, you change the rules, you change the game. Um, but then you are also seeing the metastasizing of the big lie. Uh, through the Republican Party's continued failure to confront Donald Trump, this idea that they can use his supporters' passion, uh, and then they'll be able to corral them into something resembling a responsible going, a governing coalition. How many times have we seen this movie? I mean, it can't get any worse. We had an attack on our capital. This is a screaming crisis for our democracy, and it's been followed by the big lie metastasizing, by, by, by people running as partisans to take on secretaries of state who had the courage of their convictions and actually were profiles and courage, Republicans who just tried to run a nonpartisan election to make the election administration more partisan. Um, all the while, this constant repeated lie is desi seemingly designed to decrease trust in the efficacy of our elections. That is precisely what the challenges to liberal democracy overseas want to see. 
right? They're saying that liberal democracy is an inefficient, ineffective way of government. And these folks who, who wave the flag and say they are represent super patriotism are in fact doing, might as well be doing their bidding. And, and that is a ongoing crisis that we need to confront with eyes wide open. Today in my reality check, I began by quoting from Robert Kagan's op-ed in, in the Washington Post. Um, you know, I've, I've written a big essay uh, about, you know, how you can uh, call the Unum test with a, num with a, a few friends and colleagues from across the political spectrum about how we can reunite uh, the country by trying to apply a, a lens about what would unite rather than divide our country across politics, economics, and culture. Um, you know, this is a all hands on deck crisis for our generation, defending liberal democracy. If you told me that that was gonna be what we would have to spend our generation doing, uh, you know, particularly after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I'd say you were crazy, but that's where we are. That's this generation's responsibility and we have to confront it. We cannot shirk from it as journalists or as citizens. And you don't see it as a uniquely American problem. This is something that liberal democracies are facing all across the, the world. It is. We've seen the rise of a liberal democracy or Ill illiberalism mm -hmm. uh, around the world. We've seen democracies, um, you know, uh, this is why, you know, Tucker Carlson's, you know, you know, infomercial for, you know, authoritarian regimes in Hungary and Orban was such a, a big deal. Um, I mean, you know, this is this is a clear and present danger and it needs to be confronted and it can be done in the most patriotic way possible by drawing on um, the warnings of the founders, you know, who understood that, that democracy was an experiment that needed to be defended. When I wrote Washington's farewell about George Washington's farewell address, the whole point is he warned future generations about the forces that could derail democratic republics. And, and you know, chief among them is what we would call hyperpartisanship. So when we feed into this or when we see the rise abroad, this is an American version of it. But, you know, every time we have dysfunction and division to an extreme, it's no accident that we see foreign adversaries trying to drive uh, disinformation abroad, um, from QAnon conspiracy theories to anti-vax conspiracy theories, you know, that we know they have a vested interest. They recognize that our, our divisions are to some extent America's Achilles heel. But if you look writ large over the last two decades, I think what you see is a reaction to globalization that has caused um, tribal identities to, to be in a defensive crouch and lash out. So this is still a jump ball moment in that effort, but I, for one, refuse to believe that we're going to be heading into an authoritarian century. Um, but the, the liberal democracies need to band together. We need to reaffirm the values that undergird liberal democracies and do so with unflinching intensity. I want to talk about CNN a little bit. You sure. are an anchor there. You appear on New Day Daily, yep. uh, which is CNN's morning show. Now, New Day is a little bit of a different format from its rivals, Morning Joe and Fox and Friends. It has a bit more of a serious focus on the news. Yep. It, my question is, do you think that that's what morning news viewers want with their coffee? <laughs> well, first of all, I think differentiation is important in any news brand, as I know you, you appreciate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think that there is a possibility to sort of triangulate, uh, if you will, between between a, 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 a coffee clatch and, you know, I don't, Fox and Friends does its own thing. And I don't even know that that's, you know, worth even... Uh, it's a time slot competitor. Sure, uh, but but I think you've got to build on CNN's differentiation, which is reporting around the world, mm -hmm. unparalleled access to real time reporting um, at a time when a lot of you know coverage has been constrained for news organizations that don't have the size and scope of CNN. And so you've got to lean into that uh, differentiation, but you can do it with a sense of personality and punch. 
And, 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 and I think that's what's key. I think the, the alchemy of individuals is essential in any newsroom, but especially on a, on a television show. I think you need, as a journalist, I've always believed that one of our core jobs, perhaps our core job, is to make the important stories interesting. Um, a lot of faith in our, in our uh, relatively new EP, Eric Hall, Bree and Berman are great. I think you look at Laura Jarrett and Harry Anton and some of the other folks who sort of form the loose ensemble cast. And, and I think you, you get a sense of, of, of that differentiation. But I do think it's something that uh, needs to be leaned into. I think at the end of the day, people would like to get smarter, not dumber, but it, they need to do it in a way that doesn't taste like medicine. At the end of the day, I think if you talk to people eye to eye, not talking down to them, uh, not you know, you know, shooting below uh, their ability, they will reward quality. Um, you know, I think qual quality content attracts quality uh, viewers, and and that that differentiation can create real loyalty over time, hmm. um, because they'll see that you know that's something I'm not getting anyplace else. And at the end of the day, I think what CNN's brand is about is breaking news and accountability journalism. Yeah, um, I think we both do both very well, and I think New Day does both very. What has it been like working at a cable news network during COVID? Are you in the studio regularly? You're going in every day? Sure. Uh, you know, New Day was one of the last shows to be on set at the outset. Uh -huh. um, it was one of the first shows to come back on set. Um, I came back in almost precisely one year ago it, uh, on set. Um, and, and look, I, I think particularly for we talk about that alchemy of individuals, you know, that really reads across the camera, being on set is best. It's not essential, but it's preferable. The time um, delay feels like a yeah, killer, right? uh, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's all those it's all those verbal cues. It's, it's the it's the humor. It's the asides. It's the stuff that uh, makes sure the news never tastes like medicine. That just becomes a little more accessible because personality reads, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, and, and and I think, frankly, character reads. Um, and, uh, and, and so we've been, you know, back at New Day for, for quite a while now, and um, the, the company's coming back, but it's been great to be on set. And I think it just, I think it adds that extra dimension that's, that's really necessary to do our jobs. Not everybody needs to be, um, and good people can disagree, but, but I, I love being on set with my colleagues. And what's your morning routine like in preparation for the show? Like, how do you prepare for the show? Well, I mean, so my role, you know, I, I write reality check five yeah. days a week. So I effectively write a column five days a week, which is. Uh, I was wondering how you got your column fix. I didn't think of it like that, that the segment's basically a column that you're writing. Yeah, it, it yeah. is. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a fact-based argument. Yep. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, back in the day, I was just like, do a reported column. And that's what I do here. I mean, I make a lot of calls in preparation. Writing mm -hmm. each reality check, I mean, they may be, you know, three, four minutes, but they take, you know, four or five hours. Um, to do, um, uh, you know, I, you know, so here you're, you're, you're writing it on, on, on deadline to deliver on air the next morning. Yeah. Um, and, and all the facts are cited and all the information that goes in and you want to make sure it, it works visually as, as working with my producers, as well as, um, you know, as well as the language and the delivery, but it's, it's enormously satisfying. Got, a, you know, a high degree of discretion, what I want to cover on any given day based on what I'm passionate about, which is not always what's almost definitionally not what's necessarily driving the top of the news cycle. I can counter program. I can say, here's an important story uh, that, that you haven't seen. And of course, I, I balance all this with, you know, two uh, amazing young kids and, and my bride, Margaret Hoover, who has her own weekly show firing line on PBS. Um, and, and, you know, I get up zero dark 30, um, uh, you know, 
roll into the office after a coffee and making sure you know you see what you missed while you were sleeping um and uh go on air which provides its own adrenaline begin blocking out the next day's reality check pulling the research um then one of the great things about doing a morning show particularly compared to the never-ending uh you know focus that being an eic requires as i know you can relate to and i, and I did for five years uh while running the daily beast um you know i can pick my kids up at school and 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 go play sports with them or go go you know spend spend some hours with them and you know, have dinner with them and put them to bed and maybe watch the yankee game and set of stories as we did during the yankees decimation uh the sweep against boston uh this past weekend um and and that's amazing you know someone once said being a writer's like having homework for the rest of your life and so it's not like that deadline ever goes away mm. um but but um you know, you can carve out a better a better work life balance, and I do think the morning show in particular is is great for having small kids. And what is your media diet like? What are you reading and watching in preparation for the show and in preparation for Reality Check? Sure. Um, well, I mean, you know, be, beyond you know, sort of, you know, CNN's always on in in, in the background. Sure. Um, I love The Economist. I read, you know, The Times, The Washington Post. Um, I, I, you know, I think your Twitter follows can help, and it's important to have sort of a a broad spectrum on, on the news diet, which is not to say that, um, you know, I, I, I sort of folks who, who run the gamut as I, as I tried to recruit calmness when I was running the deal of bees from, from liberal to libertarian, um, you know, I've got a lot of respect for the folks at Bulwark and the dispatch. I think they do really good, interesting analysis and work, um, uh, you know, political wire I find is an invaluable, uh, um, site that really aggregates the news that the news judgment of Tegan Goddard who runs it I think is excellent um, and he really gets a, a good high low and and, and uh, cuts to the chase on a lot of things so you know yeah you know New York Times Washington Post the Atlantic does mm. incredible work obviously the Daily Beast my friends and former yep. colleagues once a beast always a beast <laughs> incredibly proud of, of the work they do and the cheat sheet remains invaluable um, but you know you got to make sure you're 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 paying attention to um, what's happening, but then not just uh, having the, the 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 news flume drive your your, mm. your news. How about the rival cable news networks, MSNBC, Fox News? Do you watch them? Uh, sure, occasionally. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I've I've got I've got friends at, at MSNBC um who uh I, I respect their their analysis and and, and their perspective 100 percent um there remain a few good journalists left at fox news um you know uh, you know but but fundamentally i think that is um uh they're 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 mostly right-wing talk tv mm. so before we wrap up this interview john why don't you tell us a little bit about what we can expect going forward from your cnn digital show Absolutely. So we've got, you know, we've got a bunch of episodes already uh, in the can where we're, I'm, I'm writing and researching a few others that we'll be doing over the, the coming days and weeks. But we're going to be looking at everything from the rise of white identity politics to the uh, rise of militias and how they're connected to much older strains in, in American politics. We're going to because one of the things that I as, as a columnist and a journalist care about is solutions. I like solutions journalism and I don't think we, we do enough of it in general is a look at how to get someone out of a cult. Um, what are the best practices for that? Um, in, in the spirit of news, you can use that riffs off this problem of, of the extremist people. 
Uh, and then we, we've got some other other ones already planned down the road that I'm, I'm writing right now. So th there, there's continuity and stuff that's incredibly relevant to what we're confronting today, but we're adding perspective with history, a um, little bit of humor, and then talking to reporters who are on the front lines, pulling out some of their best stuff and hopefully driving towards solutions and something resembling common ground. John Avalon, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Interview. Please subscribe to The Interview on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And check out coverage of my conversation with John Avalon on Mediate.com.